right, guys, welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. So today is an extremely special yeah. day because we have on one of my favorite musicians of all time, rap legend. So member of Tupac Shakur's Outlaws and multi-platinum selling artist, Idi Amin. Today, we're going to be talking to Idi about his new book, Street Fame. And so first of all, I want to say I love the title of the book, man. I love the song with Pac and obviously not so. And then uh, also, I really want to say before we begin, before we begin talking about the book, I want to say uh, to all of the kind of listeners out there who don't know. So Alan and I actually started off on the O4L online network. So our podcast, when it originally uh, shot up in 2019, we started off with Vegas Media Designs with Edie and the O4L. Shout out to him. And Edie, man, I want to say thank you so much for having you on our, for having us on your network, man. It was such a fucking honor for us. And uh, so for me, who grew up listening to you, and I, you might have not known this, I still listen to the Still I Rise album almost every day of my life, man. Almost all of the songs. And so for us, it was such wow. an honor to be a part of O4L, man. Like, such a blessing. Yeah, man. You guys have always done a great job. It's a pleasure to have you, um, you know, affiliated. I see what you guys are doing. You've taken it and, and taking it to, you know, new heights. And, and, and that's what it's about. You know what I mean? Um, that's all I ever wanted to do. I just wanted to take the, the the gift Tupac gave me and do the best that I can with it and affect as many lives and, and change as many lives as possible because that's what he did for me. Yeah, man. And obviously, thank you so much for paying it forward. And so, okay, all right, now going into the book. So I'm going to read a passage from Edie's, Edie's book and then we'll start talking about yeah. it. All right. So Edie wrote, I've been in the studio for a few days and this is going to be harder than I thought. The songs don't sound believable to me. How am I going to get King or anybody for that matter to sign me? That's the thing about hip hop that separates it from some other genres of music. People have to buy what you're selling, believe in you and your message. If they don't, you can start looking for work elsewhere. Whether you're a backpacker, backpacker, gangster, or a player, the buyers have to believe it. They have to want to be you or as close to whom you put in front of them as possible. Mm -hmm. The music must reflect that. All the rappers I looked up to growing up had big personas, and it was as if you knew them before, because or, or because of or through their songs. I could listen to Ice Cube, and even though and even though I never stepped foot in South Central LA, and I knew that I could survive there. The mm -hmm. same with, let's say, KRS-One. The South Bronx was now my home because of the way he repped it on wax so that's so dope man it seems like for you this book going back to it street fame so it seems like it's a love letter to hip-hop and so i know that you're from brooklyn man so can you tell us a little bit about your background your upbringing how you fell in love with hip-hop and why it meant so much to you yeah man um i was born in the bronx we left the bronx my mother and and my brother and i left the bronx um when i was two years old my mother was leaving an abusive relationship that she was having with my father, who was an addict at the time. And so um, she tried to get a, as far away from him and I guess the Bronx as, as possible. And we landed in um, Coney Island, mm -hmm. which is um, like on the, right on the edge of Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Right, right uh, across the street. I lived across the street from the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. And um, hip hop was everywhere. You know what I mean? Like I was literally born right when hip hop was being born. And as I grew, it continued to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to be 50 this summer and hip hop turned 50 last summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, man, I don't know if you do. So we're actually not far away from Coney Island. We're like two, two or three like South Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah we're from South Brooklyn. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So when guests come on and they're like, hey, where are you guys located? We're like, oh, Coney Island. Because like nobody knows this area, like the intimacies. Get the, the fuck out of here. Yeah, 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 bro. Yeah. We're not that far away from Coney Island. Yeah. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. So then you already know, man. You 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 know what Coney Island is like. And, um, that's, and uh, that's where, you know, that's where my love of hip hop literally was born. Right there. Yeah. So can you tell us how you discovered it, man? So who were some of your favorite artists coming up? Man, I discovered it because I had an uncle, man, my uncle who's still living to this day, um, who actually inspired the book. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, he had this brown Cadillac, man. And he used to ride up and down the street in Coney Island. And he was well known in this, in Coney Island. And he would play... Uh, this this record that just um, sounded like nothing I ever heard before. And it was a record called Sucker MCs by Run DMC. You know what I mean? And um, also my mother, because at the time she was still relatively young, she used to go out to disco texts and parties. And that's where hip hop was born as well. And she used to bring these records home. So it was kind of coming at me 
from a lot of different ways, but mainly in the street, you know, people walking down the block with the, the big boom boxes, the radios, you know, blasting hip hop, you know what I mean? Hip hop was literally in the streets. And then when I would go home, it was in my home as well. And so artists like, of course, Run DMC, all the early greats, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, you know, all of those great early groups is what I was starting to hear as a, as a young kid in, in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. And in thinking about them, when you were writing this book, did you want that to be somewhat of a love letter to them to say like, hey, man, this is me paying homage to you guys? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a love letter, um, but more of a cautionary tale. Oh, okay. um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to give a wake up call mm -hmm. to hip hop and whoever would read this book to kind of um, start playing with the idea that hip hop is so big. You know, um, everybody's smiling, they happy for you. Yeah. Yeah, I got you, man. And then so going into the story, I mean, obviously there's so much treachery involved, but then on top of that, I mean, there is a sort of love. So let's actually get into some of the characters. So can you tell us about their development, who they are, and how the story progresses? Yeah, well, of course, the main character, he loves hip-hop. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He absolutely loves hip-hop and um, wanted to be a hip-hop artist. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, um, life took him somewhere else. Mm. You know what I mean? Because he's a bit of a square as well. Yeah. And so you have this duality in this, in this, in this character and something that was in him that he suppressed because he wanted to go this route was awakened when he got this assignment. You know what I mean? And um, that's in all of us. You know what I mean? We all have a dark side that we suppress every day because, you know, we have to function out here in the world and, you know, we don't want to go to jail and we don't want to lose our families and our jobs and shit. So we keep we keep everything in order. And he's very focused, driven, wants to keep everything in order. But sometimes when you suppress, you can you can suppress, but you can't deny yeah, and right. it was gonna, um, the music industry absolutely exposed that. And it would have exposed that in anybody. You know what I mean? The music industry is the worst kind of drug. You know what I mean? Because once you become successful, you really hear no. Or you really get reprimanded for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like you kind of feed off of your own ego. I know. So Alan talks about that a lot, you know, kind of how the ego uh, or how you're kind of shaped by the ego in terms of how you move around in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, ego is not who you really are, right? Like it could be like idea who you have of who you are in your head, how other people perceive you, stuff like that. But, you know, when you actually think that's who you are, you're going off like all these, uh, like people telling you who you are and then you're acting like that's who you are instead of like, who are you really? Like outside of that, outside of like um, these thoughts you're having. And actually one thing I wanted to ask you, um, so with there being a lot of people who are like yes men, around you right and you rarely hear no like you were saying uh does that affect creativity at all because like before you know you're trying when you're coming up you know you're trying to get people to uh hear your music you're trying to like kind of it's not like prove yourself but it's kind of like there's like more of a struggle that's going on there and then that really a lot of a lot of really great things come out of that like a lot of creativity yeah. but when people keep telling you yes all the time oh this sounds amazing they can't tell you no Does, did that ever like was that ever a problem for you not really um for us because for one um we had such a high bar above us to you know kind of compare our music to, yeah. you know what I mean? Although um, we didn't visit that bar frequently, you know, we 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 knew it was there. We knew what, you know, it kind of humbles you. You know what I mean? When you have that, you know what I mean? Now, when you're the bar, that's different. You know what I mean? When you're the bar, that's different. You have to be your own, you know what I mean? You have to be able to critique yourself and, and be very self-aware and be able to step out of yourself. And most people can't do that. You know what I mean? And I you, I can't blame them. I don't know if you can, but I can't blame people for that's very difficult to do yeah. to separate ego from self. Yeah. 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 That That's when you start in the journey into self-mastery. And that's what we should all be, be trying to achieve. You know, harness the ego. 
because the ego is not bad. It's just about knowing when to turn it on and turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. And then so in the book, going into the ego and going into the main character. So how do you feel as though self-mastery applies here? So because he starts out as a cop and then he becomes a rapper and then he thinks, well, you know, I actually was a rapper and I was really good at this, but then I had to give it up to give up something else. And then as he kind of goes along and he learns to rap and he becomes better and better and better. He's also dealing with a lot of yes men and people who are kind of, you know, trying to you have this character uh, initially who's, uh, let's say, a little bit of a kind of a business mogul. Right. Uh, this dude King. Right. So he kind of feeds him he tells him how great he is and then but in some ways he's still trying to craft this creativity right so the question is how does self-mastery or in your mind how does self-mastery apply here how does the character develop into something of a bit more of a full-blown not just a full-blown person but a full-blown creative person well that that's a that's a part of you know his journey and so along the journey to self-mastery you know you're going to be tested yeah. you're going to be tested all the time and he's being tested in ways that he's not even realizing, you know what I mean? Because he still thinks his, his, you know, he's still on the job, mm. you know what I mean? But the tests are coming and they begin to come one after another. And so this is a part of his journey. And when you read the book, you, you know, when you get to the end, you'll see what kind of journey it was for him, you know what I mean? And, and where he, may or may not go later on in life who knows maybe this journey is something that redefines him and, and teaches him valuable lessons and he learns from mistakes that he never makes again or maybe there's more lessons to be learned for you know what i mean but at this at i don't know where you're at in the book but as far Halfway as the book through. Is, he's yeah he's not self-mastery is is he's failing let's just mm -hmm. say that yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's failing at you know at, at every test that's thrown at him yeah, and I like the contrast that you have between him and Stanley, where Stanley is this other undercover officer, but you kind of see that he gets taken in by the dark side. So for him, he kind of falls in love with it in a way. So obviously, I don't know exactly where the story is going yet, but you can kind of already see it, that he's going to find a way where he's going to have a moral conflict at some point. You can already see it coming. But where with Stanley, you can kind of see that he's already fed into it and he's already been corrupted if he already wasn't corrupt to begin with. So is that what you were trying to show? That like, listen, when you have this sort of moral dilemma, this... What we call an existential fork in the road it's that some people choose this road and they kind of go about that righteous or go on the righteous road or the righteous side and then you have these other people who just i mean become corruptible yeah i mean really there's corruption on both sides of the fence you know what i mean and that's just the nature of man you know the um mm -hmm. a dollar will corrupt you know yeah. power corrupts yeah. and so you put that into the mix and you have uh, you know, a very unhealthy gumbo mm -hmm. of, of, you know, shit to deal with. And so people, you know, in life and in this story as well, we're all um, given choices. Yeah. You know what I mean? We And that's it. That's what we have. And our gift that makes us superior, so to speak, as human species is that we have the ability to reason. So you have choices and you have the ability to reason. Everything else, you know what I mean? And so it's up to you. It's up to these characters to make these choices, whether it's right or wrong, whether you believe in right or wrong. Stanley is one of those people that doesn't necessarily believe in right or wrong. He's just like, this is, I'm in a snake pit, so I might as well throw on my snakeskin coat. Mm -hmm. Get to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? The main character, Darren, is, is, um, he kind of still is optimistic and believes in, you know, um, and wants to do right. You know what I mean? And loves hip hop so much. He wants to help clean it up. But in the process of cleaning it up, he gets very dirty. Yeah, man. Yeah. And then so now kind of mapping this onto your life and your career. So let's say for us, right? So we're, you know, we're regular dudes, man. So most of the people listening to this are also regular people. They've never experienced what the music industry is like. I mean, all of us can either guess or we can kind of learn from you guys. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit about what it was like for you coming up in it? Uh, some of the things, some of the temptations that you had to deal with, uh, some of the ways that let's say, I don't know, you felt like you might have been or even were corrupted. Oh, and also, if like, did you sometimes feel like the Darren character? Did you experience people who were like the Stanley character? Yeah, that, that too. Um, no, I've never met um anybody like the main character. You know, um, maybe I've been around these individuals sure. and just didn't know it. 
who knows? Mm-hmm. But um, as far as Stanley, I think we all have Stanleys in our life. You know what I mean? You know, um, I think we all have people that just uh, are kind of, you know, pragmatic in the sense that, hey, this is life is shitty. So I might as well be as shitty as life or mm-hmm. be shittier to survive mm-hmm. out here. You know what I mean? Like, this is what it is. And I'm going to just I'm going to just go with it. And so I think we all kind of can identify with the the, uh, the Stanley character. As far as my personal story, hey, man, this is sex, drugs and rock and roll. You know what I mean? And so whatever you can imagine, I've seen or experienced firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, because you guys obviously came up with Tupac, and he, from at least from what Moo told us many times when he was on the show, he said that Pac tried to actually protect you guys from fame, that he really didn't want that. Did you experience that too? Yeah, he did. He did the best he could. Yeah, he did the best he could. You know what I mean? And that's very um, honorable of him. That's very big brother like of him, which he was. But at the end of the day, we were all we're human beings. We all had choices. And we didn't always make the best choices. Yeah. So I, can you tell us a little bit about so a little bit about some of the guidance that he gave you and what he saw with you guys or where you guys were going that he wanted to help? Um you know, Pac really uh for me personally, Pac led by example. He was uh he he was the type to say, look, you wanna do this? Watch and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I did. I paid a lot. Of, I paid attention the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And was there anything in particular that he wanted to keep you guys away from? Especially, I mean, some of the people who have more power or things like that? I don't know. Because I, in, on one end, he wanted to keep us away from certain things. And then on the other end, um, he literally and figuratively would drive us. Mm. You know what I mean? And, you know, we were... Um, we were kind of all on a, on the same page as far as being young and impulsive and, you know, not really um, healed from things that we all went through in childhood. Mm. I mean, so you kind of have these individuals that are given this um, amazing opportunity to do something that they love and change their life and change their family lives, but are completely, you know, in the trenches of, trauma yeah and trying to figure it out and you can hear because we talk about it in the music it's not like we put like we weren't the kind of rappers that gave you a nice shiny you know what i'm saying product to pick Mm -hmm. up you know what i mean we kind of we gave you the flaws and everything you know what i mean we told you like yo we fucked up shit is fucked up but we're trying to figure it out we want better we 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 want better for ourselves we want better for our community but at the same time this is what it is yeah man yeah and speaking of trauma i mean in your minds i mean you know maybe this is kind of this has an obvious answer but i still want to know what your opinion would be so in dealing with trauma why did you think at least at the time that the music industry uh, you know sex drugs and rock and roll why did you think in some ways that that would be healing we didn't mm. we didn't we didn't even know what healing was about yeah, mm. we didn't even know you could heal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there was no concept of that. You know, mental health was not as popular as it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, is there a point, a part of you that still would go back? Especially to that in the hip hop community. Especially, oh, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a part of you that would still go back to that man? Because I mean, in some of your songs, especially "Our Life" on the on the old school Outlaw album, you know, you talk about what it was like with the, you know, you talk about the Jaguars, you know, the the women that you were with. Like, is there still a part of you that wish you had that lifestyle, or do you feel like you've at this point moved on from it? Who's to say I don't? I hear you. I mean, because you have a family now, so. <laughs> Who's to say? I don't. I live a I live a fucking fabulous life, man. But what I have learned as an adult, Mm -hmm. that there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah, you know what I mean. And um, there's certain things that I'm gonna do every day of my life. There's certain things that I stick to, and there's certain rules that I follow no matter what, and I don't break them for any reason Mm -hmm. at all. And I kind of let that guide me. But at the same time, I'm a human being and I love life to the fullest. And I love all the, the flavors and textures and experiences. I want to have as many as I can on this ride because we only get one. Yeah. 
That's true. Plus, yeah, you, so, you know, oh, yeah. it's not, it, it may not be as wild as it was, of course. You know what I mean? Like, it's not as wild as it was. Yeah. Not at all. You know what I mean? But um, life is still very good. That's why I named my, one of my last projects La Bella Vida. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm giving you music in real time. That's really my life that I'm living right now. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, uh, honestly, even from the new song, Money and the Power, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you get that vibe. Like, it's still, you know, it's still good. Everything's like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah. And then, so, Edie, you said, man, that you don't, you haven't really experienced a character like Darren in real life. But would you say that you modeled yourself or actually you modeled any of the characters on yourself or any of the outlaws in any way? Not at all. Okay. This, this, this story is completely, um, it's fiction based in reality. Mm-hmm. Because everything in the book really does happen and really has happened and really can happen. Mm-hmm. But as far as the outlaws or Tupac or any of that, it's it has nothing, you know what I mean? Some things I've seen on my journey, of course, you know what I mean? How how else would I be able to, you know, talk about it? You know what I mean? And the number mm-hmm. one thing as a writer is to write what you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know hip hop and I know the hip hop industry. I've lived it since I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, what caused that shift for you from from music to writing? Like, what what is it that like pulled you towards writing? It really wasn't a shift. I was always a writer. I always excelled right. at writing when I was in school. That was my favorite subject. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I would um I, I would have been a writer if I and I can still consider myself a writer even though even though I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, writing is something I've always done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? From the time I was a kid, from poetry to journaling to writing these um, stories, to writing raps, to eventually writing songs, mm. always been a writer. Yeah. So it's not really a shift for me. The book was going to happen. Some type of book was going to happen sooner or later. Oh, gotcha. No, I gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, I can't imagine, man. Like, so for somebody like you, who was obviously at the time in the mid 90s, you know, actually in the early 90s, thinking about it, that you were super young. And then you have this person who's already a legendary figure in Tupac reading your poetry and your rhymes and thinking, like, damn, yo, you like, you are super fucking talented. So, what was that like for you when Pac actually discovered your work and gave you feedback on it the first time? It was all the validation I needed mm-hmm. to do something that I already knew I was going to do. Mm-hmm. because I loved hip hop so much and I loved writing and creating so much. I was going to do this whether a Tupac existed or not. This was going to be something that I, that I did. I, I knew at a very early age, this is what I wanted to do. And we literally had dreams about it. I would wake up dreaming. You know what I mean? Like true story. I would dream that I met Marley Mall, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? On the train and rap for him and he put me in a juice crew. Mm-hmm. Literally yeah. used to have this dream and I had it more than once. Mm-hmm. And so this was something that I was gonna do regardless. So when Pac said, yo, you got talent, all you gotta do is graduate high school and you could come to Oakland and you know, let's do it. That was all I needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was it. That's dope, man. I, always thought, I already thought he was, you know, an amazing um, rapper. Mm, yeah. So for an amazing rapper to tell you you dope, that's sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, man. And that so that's gonna be my next question. So in terms of your perspective now, why did you value Pac so much before you even knew him? What about his rhymes or what about like let's say your favorite songs of his drew you to him? Well, my journey with Tupac kind of goes before we were even in the music industry, before he was in the music industry. Um, he just uh when I finally began to hear his music. Um, it was a different, it was a different voice. Mm-hmm. It was a different tone. His, his, the texture of his voice was different. And, um, even when we were kids, I think his, you know how your voice changes when you're going through puberty? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pac's voice kind of never did that. He kind of had that voice, you know what I mean? His whole life, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and so when you hear it on beats and you hear it on hip hop and like just to know that he was uh he was on the same page that I was on and loving hip hop and wanting to contribute to it 
was, um, you know, amazing for me. You know what I mean? Because I really didn't have any other family members that were really like into being the artist. We all loved hip hop, but there was no other person in in the family at that point that was really trying to pursue it as a life, a lifestyle and a career. So it was just, you know, great to know that somebody I, I've known most of my life was into hip hop and, you know, he was actually dope. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when he started, he wasn't as good as he was going to be. Yeah. I mean, did you guys see that though? And thinking of just the group together, the outlaws, like not even just Paca singularly, because I think that was a little bit more obvious. But when you guys started Drama Sidal, was there a thought of like, hey, this is where this could go? All we had was him. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like all we had to, to gauge was really him because that's the only person we knew that actually got a record deal, made it into the music industry, even did a movie mm -hmm. and had a actual career in this business and so whatever he did let us know we could do mm -hmm. you know yeah, what so, I mean so I mean yeah. yeah so essentially like he, yeah he inspired you guys and again he inspired you with the confidence to know that you guys can be a part of the group so yeah when he dis when he created Drama Seidel and again what became the Outlaws did he have a particular vision for it at the time like more long term or was it more like hey let's put this together and see where it goes there was a there was a couple of different visions, you know what I mean, and um, everything I can't get into into detail because obviously we have some projects coming that you know what I mean we got we got to save stuff for, mm -hmm. but um, you know that drama side was one vision. There was several different visions that led up to the outlaws and the outlaws being the thing that that stuck. Mm -hmm. Drama side was just one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how? Do, why did you guys end up changing the name to the Outlaws? It's a, that's a famous story, a famous mm -hmm. Hussein Fatal story. Because mm -hmm. you know we were we were the young thugs, we were dramacidal, we were you know what I mean, a lot yep. of different things. And, you know, um, the Outlaws just made the most sense, and you know, rest in peace to Hussein Fatal. He was the one to be able to identify that. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about that? How did that happen? I don't want to go into detail about that. I got to save that. I got to save that story. All right. I got you, man. Yeah. And then so with the, okay. So then with all of the people, with all of the outlaws, right? So we have Big Psych, we had Hussein Fatal, Young Noble. So how was all of that put together? How did Pac end up finding all of you guys? Um, As far as, you know, um, Tupac and Psych's relationship and how they met, um, because I wasn't there personally, I don't want to go into that because I, I might say something that's incorrect. Mm -hmm. I just heard stories about how they met. Yep. And so I'm going to leave that um, alone. As far as the outlaws is concerned, the outlaws kind of all knew each other at different stages of our, of our lives and was around each other at different stages of our lives before music came into the play. And the common denominator was um, Yafeo Gaddafi Fuller and Tupac Shakur. Mm -hmm. Those are the two common denominators. And um, we all have a connection to those two individuals. No, I got you, man. That's how the group came together. You know, of course, you've heard the story. Pac was in jail. He went to put together a super group. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, asking you shall receive. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, you get, you get, you get the group and you get the group and, um, you know, you get everything else that comes along with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is, is there a part of you that still thinks about what it would have been like had he started Machiavelli records and you guys been his first artist? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I kinda, um, you know, I, I don't like to stay in the past too much, but fucking amazing. You know what I mean? The, the, the shit that we were um, embarking on and the shit that we were working on, and where we could have took it, sky's the limit. Yeah, I got you, man. How do you feel about the cultural impact of hip hop today? You know, versus when you started. Oh man, it's it's you know it's you know it's it's hard to you know put it into words and not give it enough, give it enough that mm -hmm. it deserves. You know, um, hip hop has changed so many lives and present company included, um, it is a cultural phenomenon that came up literally out of the streets. And it literally is the idea of taking 
nothing and turn it into something. And how American is that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I just can't, you know, I can't express enough love for hip hop. The industry that comes along with it, not a fan of that. Yeah. But that's the music business. And so if you don't want to be in the music business and you have to deal with the shit that goes on in the music business, you might as well not be in this business, you know. And um, you know, for everybody that, you know, has complaints about the music business or anything, anything in life in general, I just say be the change you want to see. You know what yeah. I mean? If you're gonna be in the industry, you know, be different, be honorable. Be stand up and one by one, we can change the bullshit. Yeah, man. And then so for you in writing this book, going back to it. So why was it important for you to write this cautionary tale? Because I'm assuming it's geared toward uh, not necessarily only young rappers, but I'm assuming mostly young rappers. And so why was it important for you to let them know this? Well, you know, it kind of started from a conversation I was having um, with my uncle and, you know, uh, going back a little bit further as far as things that mirror each other as far as in the Black Panther movement mm-hmm. and the hip-hop movement mm-hmm. and how revolutionary each time is and how life-changing each time is and um, the radicalness of it and how some people can, can perceive that as a threat mm-hmm. and the links they will go to stifle um, certain artists, certain movements, the movement itself. Mm-hmm. And so we were having this conversation and, you know, um, comparing the parallels in it. And, you know, he had made a comment that, you know, if he could write a movie about it, he would, you know what I mean? And, and you know, just to give people an insight of what could be going on and what probably is going on within the in- music industry. And this is 10 years ago, of course, now we know what happened? We have examples. Rappers like Takashi Six Nine and yeah. the whole uh, YSL situation and and Gunner situation and different artists, you know, um, that have run into some bullshit with the law. And we see what happens when you know the government comes down and they talk about, look, you're gonna owe us some time. We need mm-hmm. some information. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So this is a fictionary tale. It's a little extreme. But absolutely, who's to say it couldn't happen? You know what I mean? Who's to say it's not happening and has it already happened? And so that was one of the reasons why um, I wanted to write the book. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale and it's um, hopefully it gets people to reading, you know what I mean? And cause that's important, you know what I mean? I feel like we're on our phones and, and shit so much that, you know, we uh, forget about the the beauty of just reading sometimes, reading a novel and just, you know, getting information out of a book. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Did you want to ask something? Yeah, actually, um, being as a cautionary tale, right? I mean, what what kind of advice would you maybe have for young artists trying to make their way up in, in the industry the way it is today? Make mistakes. Yeah. And hopefully you survive the mistakes. Mm. I mean, because through mistakes, that's how you learn. It's the only way you're going to learn. Yeah. Get in it. Do your best. You know what I'm saying? You know, have love for it. Get your money, but have, you know, some love in it, somewhere in it. And, um, yeah, just make a lot of mistakes. (laughs) I love that. So I want to read another passage from your book and talk about it. All right. So in the book, Edie wrote, uh, can compete with Rico Real. Many felt this was a veil for more than a, for more for a more sinister plan. He wanted Rico dead, but he knew all eyes were on this feud. Besides, Rico beefed up his security. Rumors swirled that he had an off-duty police officer on the payroll. Mm-hmm. Killing Rico now would mean an easy conviction for police and prosecutors. Major jail time for anybody involved. King and Lil G tried to resolve their issues, but to no avail. It seemed Lil G, once dubbed Baby King, had grown up a bit and had been doing his homework. He caught King in merciless records and numerous infractions. He was looking to get out of his contract and did an inter- a major interview with a hip-hop magazine stating, I thought these people were my family, but there is no such thing in this business. The only laws are greed and treachery. I'm no longer Baby King or Lil G. I realized these names literally put me below under the next man. Now I'm a grown-ass man. Fuck that. 
my new name is Illuminati because I'm enlightened and I now see the light and that light I will use to expose the snakes in this game. Mm. He also vowed to no longer disrespect women in his music, rap about drugs or violence, or even go as uh, even go at his arch enemy Rico Real anymore. Not only had this dude grown up, but he obviously had been reading a lot of books and did some major soul searching. Some suspect that he converted to Islam, but he never verified those assumptions either way. So Edie, I actually, so when I was reading this man, I thought of Rakim. So the famous story uh, for anybody who knows a little bit about Rakim's life is that with Dr. Dre, when he was coming in, when he was, uh, he was going to be a, a, an artist on Aftermath, he was an artist on Aftermath. So Rakim does conscious music. He doesn't, he doesn't do street stuff. There's this really great story where Dr. Dre is like, listen, man, we need you to do street music. Like this is kind of where about what we're about. Rakim thought about it. He's like, I don't really want to do it anymore. I have other things that I like. Right. So he's like, this doesn't feel authentic to me. So when you are in the industry, do you find that a lot of times what you're talking about in that passage with people who care, who want to lift uplift the community, who write songs like keep your head up? Do you find that in the music industry, a lot of times there's a lot of pushback against that and that you do get a situation like with Rakim where he says something like, hey, man, I want to uplift people. I want to make sure that people have self-esteem. I want to make sure that they feel good about themselves and the, what they're able to do and what they can contribute. I don't want to rap about stuff that degrades them. Do you find that a lot of times there is in the music, music industry a lot of pushback against that? Um, you know, this is entertainment. And so we can't forget that. You know, a lot of times, um, I think that I think one of the things that made Tupac such a great artist is that he had the ability to give you both. Mm. Not every artist can do that. And so some artists are gonna pick a side and they're gonna stay on that side. You know what I mean? And more power to them. Mm -hmm. The the pushback is whether your shit sells or not. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so you have, maybe you have situations where labels will promote another artist more than they, they have these two artists on a label. One artist is, is about what he's about. The other is about what he's about. They're on both sides of the spectrum. Maybe one artist may get more marketing dollars and promotion than the other artist. Mm. I could see that happening. You know what I mean? And, but, at the end of the day, this is music business. This is retail. It's about what's selling, what sells, and what doesn't sell. And you know, that's really that's really what it's about mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Now, if you're a conscious rapper and you move a lot of units, you're gonna get the promotion from the label. You're gonna get the, you know, you're not gonna get pushback because you sell records. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't sell records in a music industry that is based on selling records then you're going to get pushback. You're going to get, you know, people that, you know, don't want to do business with you because this shit is about making money. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's a famous quote that 50 Cent said, you know, you know, if, if this, if that's how you feel about it, just, you know, keep that shit in your house. Mm -hmm. Don't play it for nobody else. Just make it for you. Mm -hmm. But once you decide to sell it, it has to be something people are going to want to buy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I, I guess you got to figure out how to stay true to yourself amongst all of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is it, which is a full-time job in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I could see how like people in sales, you know, they, they hear, you know, uh, Oh, this, this song's about, uh, sex and money. The song, you know, some, some conscious, something, you know, uplifting. And maybe just like, even before they start to sell it, they're like, nah, obviously, you know, we're going to go for the sex and money song. Right. Uh, I know you, it doesn't ever work like that in reverse. Like, like, it's not like, let's say it's before the sales happen. Like, uh, do they make decisions like that? They're like, nah, this is about like, uh, uplifting yourself. This one's more about like raw, like sex crime, you know, like, uh, like gritty stuff. And then, and then it even stops somebody who's like more of a conscious rapper from even kind of even being, um, how should I put it? Like put out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I'm sure that I'm sure that's probably happened in the music industry. You know, fortunately for us, we've never had to experience that. We were, you know, uh, kind of independent, even even the kind of artist Tupac was. He was signed to a label, but he was independent in his thinking and how he wanted to make his music. And the vision was completely, you know, his. And so mm -hmm. when you're when you're, you know, self-designed and you know, you don't have an A and R person giving you your image and picking your songs and picking the producers you're gonna work with. You know, um, you don't have that. When you're an artist, 
that a label has signed and invested a bunch of money into, they kind of, you know, have the right to have some say-so in their investment. That's you're right. foolish to think that you're going to be in the music industry with a record deal where people have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into you and they just going to sit there and let you do what you want to do. Yeah. That's not how it works. Mm. Unless you're the kind of artist whose material and whose vision is strong enough that they could say, yo, we don't really need to, to do much. You know, like a Prince. Prince was 19 years old when he got his record deal. They wanted to pair him up with this producer and that producer. But because his vision was that strong and his belief in himself that strong, his material that strong, he was able to write, produce, and play all the fucking instruments on his first album for a label like, I think, Warner Brothers. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's type of shit is unheard of. Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder didn't even get a chance to do that. You know what I mean? Stevie Wonder had six, seven albums before he was able to write and produce his own music on his own. Prince did that at 19 years old. So you could be that kind of artist, but those artists are rare. You mm. know what I mean? From Biggie to Snoop to you name it, they all had somebody helping them. You know what I mean? Tupac is one of the few artists that literally was self-designed from his music to his image to everything that you saw mm. about him. I never saw an A&R person ever tell Pac what to do or what kind of song to record. Or, and so we never had that experience as well. Yeah, wow. Unless man. it was him saying, look, these, you guys need, as, as a teacher, you yeah. know what I mean? But other than that, we never had anybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. Death Row didn't like our album because we did the, our first album, Retribution. They didn't like it because we did what we wanted to do. You know what I mean? They wanted us to do something else. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we categor categorically refused to do anything oh, wow. what we wanted to do. Oh, man. Can you get into that? Like the specifics of that? Like, what didn't they like about it? I mean, in, 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 in their defense, there wasn't like any records that were commercially, commercially viable to be played on radio at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't. Give, you know what I mean? We were a hardcore rap group. Right. That's it. You know what I mean? And our music reflect that. So I'm not knocking Death Row for not liking our album. I get it. They fucking record company. They want to sell records. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're Tupac's group. You know what I'm saying? And so they kind of expecting to hear something at least similar to that. Or, you know what I mean? But that's not what we did. Yeah, man. And then so going back into the extremes and sort of, or I guess the different worldviews or the musical perspectives. So how do you think, I mean, if you had, if you had any insight into this, how do you think Pac was able to merge these two different worlds between what's expected from the music industry and maybe to some extent what he wanted to write about, but then also sort of the more conscious version, you know, the keep your head up, the baby don't cry, uh, these songs that were more uplifting. How was he able to merge these two seemingly extreme worlds together? No man, bad motherfucker ain't. <laughs> like, bad motherfucker, yeah. man, because it's like as an artist myself, I'm still trying to crack that code. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I think I'm not alone in that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? There's very few artists that can do that. That's it. I think you can count them on one hand. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And as far as hip hop concerned, you know, he's like one of one to do it on such a high level. You know what I mean? In my opinion. If you could find somebody else, you know, um, let me know. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I think his range is what separates him from other artists. The ability to do a keep your head up and a hit him up. How do you want it? Mama's just a little girl. You know, yep. just all these different songs and different concepts. It's just very few artists that can do it, man, in any yep. genre of music. Yeah, and then so for the things that he talked to you about, why was it important for him to have that side of himself that he didn't just want to be whatever the mainstream was or he didn't want to just fit in with that? Why did he want to do a Keep Your Head Up, which at the time was revolutionary. There were no rappers doing things like that. We never talked about shit like that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That's just who he was. Yeah. yeah. We didn't talk about shit like that. And if you knew, like if you knew Tupac, you were not surprised at the music he made. You know what I mean? The music he made was really a direct reflection of who he was. But if you didn't know Tupac, you're like, who's this artist that's doing these 
type of songs that nobody in hip hop is doing at at least at that time. You're like, mm-hmm. what the what is this? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I got you, man. And so before you mentioned the rules that you live by, and so whatever gets you through in the music industry, whatever gets you through the life. So can you tell us a little bit about them? Like, what is your moral code? My moral code? Yeah, man. What are the rules? What's important? The, the, the rules is, you know, this is life. And so kind of want to make it to the finish line in one piece. You know what I mean? And you want to go around the board as many times as possible and, you know, collect 200, mm-hmm. go around, yeah. do as mm-hmm. much as you can. You know what I mean? And like, you know, um, as far as my moral code, I, I, I just believe in, um, you know, um, I won't fuck you over if you won't fuck me over. You know what I mean? And like, it's all love. I, I just, I love living. And mm-hmm. so I, I just hope the people I come in contact with and that I deal with love life as much as I do, and then we'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I love that. And then I also want to touch on the mental health aspect since we talked about it a little bit and I wanted to ask you a question about it. So you said before that you really didn't know what trauma was, how to deal with it, and you just entered the music industry. I'm assuming just thinking, hey, man, this shit is really fun. So now when you have this new perspective of it, like you know how you mentioned before that you know, trauma, mental health is now a, it's now a concept for people in the black community. So how do you see it now? What does healing mean to you now? Healing is me going to uh, going and hiking a fucking mountain mm-hmm. at eight o'clock in the morning when it's freezing outside, and you know what I mean. And you know that's that's healing. I think we all got to find different ways to do it. Some people therapy, you know what I mean. I'm not knocking therapy or going to talk to a therapist. So you know what I mean. Or some people it's the gym. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Some people is writing, journaling. You know, you just got to find different ways to heal yourself in life. Because one thing's for sure, you're gonna experience traumatic events in life. It's shit's gonna go fucking wrong. Life is crazy. You know, the, the world is crazy. It's, life is very fragile. You know what I mean? Human life is very fragile. And, and the fact that we've continued to endure for, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of years and we're still here evolving is amazing because life is very fragile. You could be out of here just like that. And so um, with that being said, you got to find different ways to just make this journey a a enjoyable one. You know what I mean? That's really what it's all about. Like that's the, if you want to know the secret to life, the key to life is just to like enjoy the ride and gratitude and being grateful that you get another day because somebody's not waking up today. I got you, man. And then so when you, I know you got these projects coming up, which I also want to ask you about in a minute, but uh, in terms of the outlaws, but what do you want people to think about and remember when they think of the outlaws? Essentially, what do you want the outlaws legacy to be? Well, that's a two part, that's a twofold question, because at the end of the day, what people perceive you and how people perceive us is completely out of our control. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's it, what we do as men and as human beings and as individual and then as artists is going to um, our legacy is more as far as the families we raise and, you know, how they turn out because we're fathers, you know what I mean? And that's yeah. the legacy. The music shit is whatever, you know what I mean? People could think like, oh, the outlaws were fucking trash, you know what I mean? And you get enough people to think that then. You know what I mean? There it is. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, you know, all we ever did was do our best. You know what I mean? And to uh, to make it through a very, very unique situation. I think the Outlaw story is probably one of the more unique stories in hip hop history. I think it's a story that needs to be told. That's another so many jewels in that story and, and so many things that people can learn from from our story. And so that's uh the main reason I want to have our story told, but you know, um, like I said, legacy is 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 the real shit. Mm-hmm. The, the, the the ones that have our last names and that look like us, and you know, what I mean, the opportunities that we could provide for them, and you know, like you said earlier, paying it forward and paying it forward through the people that we um created and how they contribute to society. You know what I mean, and whether they're uh, contributing positively or their burden on society. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's the legacy right there. 
Wow, man. I love that. And so, all right, let's talk about the projects. What are you guys got coming up? What are in the what's in the works and especially what's in the works related to the outlaws? Well, as far as street fame is concerned, I have a soundtrack coming out for that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to drop very soon. Damn. All new music on it. Um, some solo music for myself, but I'm also passing the baton, so to speak, to some other artists that I rock with. Um, younger artists such as uh, Mars, Marcellus, I've been working with a lot lately. Ed Bone, of course. Ed Bone is somebody we've been working with for over 20 years. H-Rider is another artist we've been working with for over 20 years. He's on it. But then I have new artists I'm working with, like Mac Mason. We just mm-hmm. shot a video for a record called What's the Vibe About? He's an artist that's straight out of Brooklyn, you know, uh, my hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, me, him, and Nob, that's a fucking crazy track. And so the soundtrack is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's, it's inspired by the story, street fame, and it's, you know, hardcore street hip-hop at his finest, you know what I mean? Shout out mm-hmm. to Chronicle, he also has a dope song on that, on the project as well. Actuals on the project, mm-hmm. um, False, my partner in the recording um, app that I'm working on, and I'm CEO of. And so he's on there as well. So that's first coming up. Then after that, I have a, a EP I'm putting out for Valentine's Day with, with the artist Mars, Marcellus. Um, it's kind of like a a best of both worlds project in the, in the sense that um, we're just mashing up hip hop and R&B and just putting it together on one project. Hmm. Something, um, something for the ladies, Valentine's Day. If you got a girl, if you know, you got a romantic situation, this would be mm-hmm. a dope project to be playing mm-hmm. while you are having your relations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so what about the Outlaws documentary? Any Any update on that? Um, you know, one step at a time, you know, okay. um, documentaries. One thing about television and movies and all of that shit, it moves a lot slower than the music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things develop a lot slower because you're talking about so much more money and so much more moving parts than music. You know what I mean? I can go in the studio for a few days straight and give you a project and have it uploaded and into the world in a couple of weeks. Yep doesn't work like that with television, movies, and all of this shit. So anytime you see a movie, on average, it took 10 years to get to the point where you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most projects, you know what I'm saying? So one step at a time, it's in development. And that's really, is that's the most I can say about it because anything else would just be hyping people up. Yeah. And I don't want to hype people up anymore until we have something that we can give them concrete. You know what I mean? But I will say it's in development. The story continues to, to develop. Oh, man. Yeah, that's so awesome. Dude, I've been looking forward to that, man, for years. So I'm just curious. What did you think of the Dear Mama documentary? I'm a fan of documentaries. I love documentaries of all different subject matters and whatever. I just love documentaries. And mm-hmm. so um, Dear Mama probably was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And that completely as honest as I could be has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a part of the story. Mm-hmm. It was just very, very well done. You know what I mean? Uh, um, a masterpiece, if you will. And it deserves all the accolades and, you know, credit that it can get. Yeah. I love that, man. Yeah. I agree with that too, man. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, holy shit, dude, not only is this one of the best documentaries of the year, I thought it was one of the best documentaries of all time. Yeah, it really, it really like, you know, um, the editing, the mm-hmm. editing is phenomenal. And I met the mm-hmm. editor, can't remember his name right now, um, forgive me, but, um, you know, he actually, you know, um, had a very spiritual connection to the project, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And me and him had a conversation and he, he told me some things that, um, raise the fucking hair on your on your back wow <laughs> going to making up this um particular project so mm-hmm. yeah i got you man all right so and then as we start to wrap up so the last thing i want to know about is first of all i want to know you about what do you like about podcasting since we do this and you know i feel like that's such a big connection with uh, us and you and so what do you love about podcasting and then also what do you got coming up with ed i mean tv um i think you know uh 
podcasting gives people a break for music. Mm-hmm. You know, so much music in the you know in the in the in the marketplace. And if you love music, you can be overwhelmed with the amounts you have to choose from. And so podcasting is a way for people to be entertained and informed and it not be about music. And I also, you know, the reason why podcasting has become so popular, I think for for a large part of it, people have become somewhat disillusioned with hip hop in particular. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so people want some alternatives. They still want something from the culture, you know what I mean? But they want an alternative. And I'm speaking about hip hop podcasting mm-hmm. specifically, mm-hmm. but podcasting as a whole is just, you know, like I said, it's, it's an alternative for music. You can do it while you've you know, you're working out, you can do it while you're working, you can listen to it in so many different ways. And um, the podcasts that I've myself have um, really appreciated are the ones that kind of stick to a particular subject, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Kind of the, the, the murder ones, the crime ones, those, that's how I got introduced to podcasts through that. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother animal. I don't really feel like what I do is podcasting as far as um, the outlaw show. Mm-hmm. It's more of like a one-on-one interview that's in the setting of a podcast. But mm-hmm. as much as I've tried to make it a podcast, that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just me having a conversation with people that I'm interested in and I'm interested in their journeys and I want to um, help them share with my audience. Oh man, yeah, I love that dude. And like, yeah, man, just from what you guys do, just as the outlaws, EDM, mean the person. I mean, dude, all of us are inspired by you. You know, your work, 100%. obviously, with everything, like with the podcasting, dude. When we started out on the O4L Online Network, I mean, we were inspired by the dinner club that you were doing at the time. So that was yeah. a dope ass show, man. Oh and man, love- thank you, man. Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. And it was so cool that you guys ended up taking the dinner club and moving it to EDME TV. Because I remember you guys had like a kind of like a low key studio initially, and now you guys went all out and like the Still I Rise album on the on the background and everything. That's so dope, man. Yeah, yeah, man. Unfortunately, we had to move out of that location. We'll be moving to a new location very soon, and um, the Outlaw Show is going to have a new look, obviously. But um, you know, I appreciate that that uh that opportunity and that time to do that, to do that show kind of gave me a chance because a lot of different shows started to develop and came really popular. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I literally started at the beginning of podcasting when I was doing the real talk show at T radio V mm-hmm. out here in LA, you know, and I was the first kind of semi podcast kind of like a radio show put together. And so, um, I got very interested in that. And of course, growing up in New York City, as a kid in the 80s, radio was so big and so popular. Mm-hmm. So I was always, you know, listening to radio. You know, I had a radio in my room. Like as a kid in the 80s, your own radio was like having your own cell phone. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's that big. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. when I first got my first, my very first own radio on Bullbox, I played it all the time. I listened to the radio all the time. And so to be able to work in, in it as an adult was a dream come true and then the dinner club was more like radio shout out to dj ski and dash radio you know that was a great opportunity to do that show that was fun and um now it's uh the outlaw show and it's kind of a little bit more just about you know me one-on-one interviewing somebody 60 minute style or something like that yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that, man. And we're looking forward to learning more about you, learning the stories from the people that you interview, man. Again, just what you've been doing just has been so cool and so Mm -hmm. motivating to see. Uh, Okay. You got, yeah, absolutely, man. Okay. So as we start to wrap up, Alan, final questions for Edie before we go. Oh yeah. If we wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, where could we do that? You can, uh, 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 you can follow me at the, at the real Edie Don on, on Twitter and, and, uh, Edie Don O'Fall on everything Everything else, of course, I have EDM TV, OFL Digital, OFLDigital.com. Follow the whole movement. Stay up to date with us. The Outlaws Official on Facebook. Anywhere you do your social media, we're there. I love it, man. All right, Edie, dude, if I could tell teenage me that one day you'd be on my podcast, man, it would just be the most incredible thing, man. Been such a oh, fan man. of you. Oh, man, if I could tell teenage me that I'd be doing interviews 
You know what I mean? And and talking about music and being an artist. So we're similar in that regard, man. You know what I mean? I hear you, man. Again, Edie, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was epic. So grateful. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks a lot. Absolutely, man. We'll Thanks be for the support for the book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Great story, man. I can't finish. I can't wait to finish reading it. All right, man. We'll, mm-hmm. all right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, man. All right, y'all. So, everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.